Works. <laughs> I put batteries in this thing. It usually helps. <laughs> Good evening. I hope you all are doing well. Okay. I hope that after this study, you'll do well. I hope that in just a moment, you'll do well. And I hope you will do well because Jesus is on your side. And He loves you very much. He loves us with an everlasting love. This thought went through my mind and my heart today that Well, it came in the form of a question, and the question had to do with who do we worship or what do we worship? Because if our thoughts and our hearts are not directed toward our Lord and Savior, each and every day, and in everything, then we have to check our hearts to see if we're really and truly worshiping the one true God. Because if we're not, then we're worshiping other things. When things become more important to us than the work and the person and the work of Jesus Christ, We've got to check our hearts. And I say this because it's really easy in this day and time in which we live to be so distracted by so many things. We could even be distracted by things that pertain to doing good and even church-related things. And be distracted by them. And miss why... We do what we do. So my hope and prayer is that tonight we will really focus our attention on Jesus throughout. And then realize that everything that is in God's Word, even this passage that we're looking at in Revelation tonight, even the nation of Israel, as we've talked about so much and we'll talk about again tonight, because we're dealing with this war that's going on. The war that we're going to see described tonight in the scriptures is a war that goes on even in our own daily life. Sometimes the Apostle Paul mentions it as the war that that goes on inside of us between the spirit and the flesh, the flesh and the spirit. And and it's the enemy who, who, who works on that in us. You know, that's why, why John said himself, he said, don't love the world or the things in the world because all the things of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, I mean, all these things are not of the Father. They're not. They're not of God. We have to keep our hearts and our minds focused. Especially now, especially in these last days, 
Because I don't want to keep, I don't want to keep saying, you know, we're in the last days and make you think that we're only in the days right before the days before the days before the last days. No, we're in the last days. Do y'all understand that? I mean, these are, these are them. Anything can happen at any moment given the global conditions that we have. Because as we have mentioned many times, especially throughout the beginning of our study of the book of Revelation, Jesus can come at any moment. I mean, at any moment. Day or night. Even the scriptures tell us that he comes like a thief in the night. We have to be so ready. We began our study in chapter 12 last week. We call the great chapter because of the great signs that were being given. And I want to go over the verses of Scripture from 1 through 6. But we're going to be looking at verses uh, 5 actually through 12 tonight. But I, we need this as a foundation again for where we were last week to where we're going this week. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with a moon under her feet and on her head, a garland of twelve stars. And then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. Remember I said that this was definitely a section in the scripture that was symbolic. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Now when I mention symbolic, that also means it's symbolic. We're getting symbolic language, but it's pointing to something that's going to happen, honestly, happen, and it's happening in reality. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven, the stars of heaven being the angels, and threw them to the earth. They become the false uh, angels, or I should, I should say the, uh, uh, the demonic angels, or the demonic powers, as I should say. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. And then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,200 and 60 days. We mention these things because the woman is not Mary. The woman is not the church or any other woman that might have thought themselves to be uh, that person. No, the woman described in these first six chapter, or six, six verses of this chapter is Israel. Because Messiah was to come through Israel, the seed of the woman. The child is Jesus. And this is, this is giving us a history somewhat of what happened from even at the beginning of creation or near the beginning of creation when 
Satan, as the serpent came and, and deceived Adam and Eve and fell into sin. And this is the whole reason why all of this is going on, because we've sinned. And yet God has chosen to send us a Redeemer, a Savior, a Messiah, an Anointed One, to deal with this particular sin issue. And actually to deal with the one who brought sin into, into this earth and into this world. This is the role of Israel in the last days. But we're going to be going on from this part, but we have to, we have to cover a couple of things that we didn't cover last time. So I want to get to that. But first of all, I want to mention that on May the 12th of 1962, General Douglas MacArthur spoke to the graduating class at West Point, And in his speech, the general quoted Plato, saying in effect, and I quote, that only the dead have seen the end of war. Only the dead have seen the end of war. And that is a very sad statement, but a very true one. Because wars collectively take a tremendous toll on the human race. In World War I alone, the First World War, 10 million men were killed, and that is 10 million soldiers were killed. That's not to mention the 6 million civilians that were killed because of the war in one way or another. Killed through just being in the wrong place at the wrong time, as they say. Or killed through disease because of the war and famine. Nearly 17 million people in the First World War, but 10 million were soldiers. And that's a hard number to comprehend. But I want you to consider by illustration the magnitude of this destruction. This is, by the way, is the North, this is the North Koreans showing off their, their armies. That's a lot of people, isn't it? All of that red and, and the yellow and all of that, those are, those are people holding up signs. It's a lot of, that's a lot of army. They, they do this so they can show off. But that's what man does to say, hey, don't mess with us. But if you were to take a parade of, of these dead from World War I, just World War I themselves, it's kind of a picture of, of the rankings in a parade. If you were to take a parade of these dead, marching them ten abreast continually with a new rank passing every two seconds, it would take 46 days to pass a given spot. 46 days for 10 million people to pass one spot, lying 10 in a row, going past. But then consider the total number of people killed in World War II. That number is estimated to be around 54,800,000. 54 million people killed because of World War II. Seven million of those were Jewish and killed only because they were Jewish. And we still haven't learned our lesson on how destructive war is. And by the way, we won't learn that lesson even in the future. For during the tribulation period, billions of lives will be destroyed. Billions. 
We can hardly comprehend 10 million people. The world today holds around 7 million people in it. And yet billions will be destroyed. The heart of man is evil and full of pride. And as long as man's heart continues to be puffed up in self-seeking, there will be wars. But the root of all of that was one person. One person. Satan. Jesus called him the murderer from the beginning. All he thinks about is murder and hatred and killing. This evening we're not going to deal, be dealing with a physical war that takes place on this earth, but a spiritual war that is going to break out in heaven. And it would be wise also to understand that there is a spiritual war raging in our own lives today and how the Lord shows us through the Apostle Paul the means by which we are able to prepare for such a war. And to be prepared for such a war. And by the way, every time a person comes into the church, every time a person comes into the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and, and, and Christ comes into their lives, they need to be prepared for that war. Each and every one of us, when we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, I hope you realize this, you just entered into a war. The good thing is, you just became a soldier in God's army and not in the army of Satan. But Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. We cannot do, we cannot partake of this war, partake in this war in and of ourselves and in our own strength. We can't. We need God's strength. We need to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. We need to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So we're being told who our enemy is. And that we need to have the whole armor of God on. You can read the rest of this, of course, but let me just give you a couple more verses. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. You see, ultimately, we're dealing with a spiritual war that's going on even right now as we sit here today. And it's not only all around us, but it affects us each and every day, doesn't it? And we're told in verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God. That's the second time Paul says, take up the armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. I would have to say that Paul is describing the days in which we live now. The days are evil. Truly evil is all around us. But the enemy, as we're going to see in our text, he's going to deceive the world. The world is going to be deceived into thinking that there's a different way of doing things. And that, you know, if we just kind of do whatever we want to do and not step on anybody else's toes and everything else, everything's going to be cool and everything's going to be all right. And we ourselves can change the world. We who have evolved from an amoeba into what we are today over millions and billions of years, that we'll be able to change this. Has anybody seen that happening anywhere? 
I just, every time I look at the news or if I look on the internet at some of the news uh, uh, sources and all, I don't see anything getting better. Can anybody, can anybody tell me differently? I don't, I don't think so. The honest truth is, the world is getting worse. But that's what God said would happen. In the last days, Paul said, perilous times will come where men shall be lovers of themselves. And that's the problem. Man has become lovers of themselves. And the sad thing is, sometimes even in the church, we have to fight that. Because it becomes what's important to us and not what's important to the Lord and to others. Because the Lord and others have to go before us. You ever looked at the letters of the word joy? That's a good way to remember this. Jesus, others, and then you. Right? J-O-Y. Jesus, others, and then you. That's the way we need to look at things from the Christian perspective now. But Paul is telling us that our strength against the enemy... Satan is in the Lord and not in our own physical strength. Or to go along in life and say, I can handle all of this stuff. I, I can do things. I, you know, in effect, I, I don't really need to go to church every week. I, in effect, I don't need to read the Bible every day. In effect, I, you know, because I can handle this, you know. I think, I think, I, I think God has, has, has made me intellectually strong. He's made me, you know, I, I can kind of check things out for myself. I can do things on my own, Right? We all can do that. And what, what is the testimony that we could all give? That just puts us into more and more trouble. When we try to figure things out ourselves. When we put God's Word aside, we put Jesus aside, we put the Holy Spirit aside, we say, ah, it doesn't matter. Well, you better check your heart because maybe Jesus isn't there. Maybe the Holy Spirit isn't there. Maybe He's surrounding you and giving you our very opportunity, but you haven't taken the opportunity. You see, God has given us spiritual armor to stand against the attacks of the enemy, but we need to know that the enemy is going to come after us deceptively, and he does. He makes us think one thing when the reality is God's Word tells us another. Satan and his demonic forces are fighting a war against God and his people. And Paul is telling us to do all that we can to put on the whole armor of God that he has given us so that we will be able to stand against the rulers of darkness. Now be prepared for battle because it rages daily. But the spiritual war that is spoken of here in Revelation 12, which we're going to get to in just a moment, is not between the church of Jesus Christ and the spiritual hosts of wickedness. It is a spiritual warfare not fought on earth but in the heavens. And this may be a difficult concept to understand, but before the end of this study, we should understand what it's all about. But even before that, we need to conclude what we began last week in reference to Israel. And specifically the context of verse 6, which we didn't quite get to last time. So, last week what we did, and I already touched on this, we identified the symbolic characters introduced to us in verses 1 through 4. The woman being Israel, the child of course represents the Lord Jesus Christ. The great fiery red dragon is Satan himself. 
Now in verse 4, we're told that Satan drew a third of the stars of heaven, which I said were angels, and threw them to the earth, doing his wicked work, uh, doing his wicked work now on this earth, while the devil has from Genesis chapter 3. Now remember, the devil and his angels, but the devil is a person. I don't know if anybody read this. I've got to say this really quickly. But, you know, some of these, these news sources, especially on the Internet, uh, those of you who may know Anthony Scalia being one of our, our chief justices or the justice of the Supreme Court, uh, you know, he's, he's, a, he's conservative and, and uh, uh, understands and knows the Word of God, knows, knows the Bible, actually. And in an interview, you know, he mentioned that he believed that the devil was a real person. But the way that the news media draws that whole picture is it makes it sound like he's kind of nuts. I said, oh, maybe he's, you know, like he really believes in the devil, like it's like, like a Satan worshiper type thing. You know? and, and, you know, that's not his, that wasn't the point of his statement. If you read everything in context about the, the interview and what he, was, what he was saying, it's just that, you know, today, you know, look around you, look at the evil, and, and the evil in itself in this world is showing us that there is a devil, that there is a force, there is a person that is causing all of this. So here's the thing. The devil has from Genesis chapter 3, when he's introduced in the garden as a serpent, has been doing all that he can to keep Messiah from accomplishing God's will. That has been what he has been trying to do since Genesis chapter 3. Which, by the way, he wasn't able to do in spite of all the people that he's killed along the way. And we talked about that a little bit last week. So when you get to, let's go back to verse 5 where it says, She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. And then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. By the way, if you go back to verse 4 and you realize that Satan Satan was just waiting for Israel to produce the uh, male child so that he could kill the male child. And we know that from the study of of the Gospels where uh, Herod, uh, the king at that time, the Herod of that time, was doing all he can to kill uh, all the children that were of two years of age and under, male children, because he wanted to destroy, you know, Satan was using Herod to destroy the Messiah, which he couldn't do, and he didn't do. So, anyway, getting back to this. There's no clearer statement than this, that the male child, of course, is the Lord Jesus, for he indeed will rule, rule the nations with a rod of iron. You go to uh, Psalm chapter 2, uh, or Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9. In Psalm 2, it says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So this is, this is giving us an indication that there is a father and that there is a son. Now remember, this is Old Testament, but that's okay. The Lord has said to me, we, we are being given a, a decree from heaven. We are given a decree from the throne of God. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. In other words, the father has said to the son, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That says sometime in the future, the, 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 the son of God was going to come and he did, Jesus. But then it says, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Those nations are what Jesus is going to inherit. And the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. 
Did Jesus come with a rod of iron when he was born? No, because the scriptures are very clear. Jesus came the first time not to judge the world, but to save the world. And you go back and the, and, and the Jewish people were given the truth that Jesus came to be the suffering servant. To give his life for his people. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, and any number of other places in the scriptures. But this is, re, this is, is pointing us to his second coming when he will come to judge and to break the nations with a rod of iron, and he will dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And, and so that is yet to come. Take, for example, again, in Revelation 19, verse 15, now out of his mouth, this is, of course, later on in our study, but now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and, all, and wrath of Almighty God. Who's, who's this describing? Jesus. At his second coming, when he comes to judge the nations. So now the statement that the child was caught up to God, that we got uh, here in our text. The statement that the child was caught up to God in his throne, is an implication that Jesus was bruised on the heel. Remember the prophecy of Genesis 3.15. That he would crush or bruise the head of Satan. But his heel, the Messiah's heel, would be uh, bruised. That's speaking of the crucifixion. It's speaking of Jesus going to the cross. But as much as the demonic forces may have thought that they won the battle by executing Jesus, and, and you know how, how foolish it is, and, and I say this because this is one of the, one of the things that was, was done to deceive the German people, and I, I know I talked about this last week, but to deceive the German people that the Jews were Christ killers. In effect, the Jews alone were Christ killers. That was a lie of the enemy spoken through a person who was possessed by the devil himself, which was Hitler himself, and all of his cohorts. They spoke this deception to the extent that those... Jewish people were, in essence, executed as the ones who killed Christ. But that's the devil, you see. And God had prophesied that Jesus was to be crucified. And if Jesus, by the way, folks, is not crucified, we have no hope. The Jewish people have no hope without Jesus being crucified. And we who today are saved would have had no hope. Thank God that Jesus was crucified. Because who of any of us here or anybody that's ever been born other than Jesus could have gone to the cross on our behalf? Not one. So people thought, oh, you know, and, and there are these people who think, well, as, as well as the, the demons themselves, we killed Jesus on the cross. 
But they didn't listen to anything that Jesus said while he was in his earthly ministry. Because Jesus said what? He says, yes, I'm going to the cross. He told his disciples, yes, I'm going to be put on the cross. And I'm going to die. But on the third day, I'm going to rise again. (laughs) You know, when you're so excited about killing Jesus, somebody needs to wake up Bill O'Reilly about the truth. Please don't read the book, Killing Jesus. I I know that it sounds like I'm... I'm, I'm, Read it if you want, but understand, it's not coming from a biblical perspective. He wrote two books... Killing, uh, killing Lincoln and Killing Kennedy and I guess from a historical perspective he made a lot of money he's going to make movies out of those too but then he decided to tackle Killing Jesus but says oh, it's not from a biblical perspective and, and yet he inserts there that you know certain things that are very unbiblical and actually heretical now, if you want to read it it's okay I'm not trying to you know so you can't read anything but don't waste your time and your money Read the scriptures, because the scriptures are true. Jesus died. On the third day, he rose again. And there were 500 witnesses to the fact that he did. And that's in the scriptures. Okay. Well, enough of beating Bill O'Reilly up. You see, while these demonic forces may have thought that they won the battle by executing Jesus... The death blow, the real death blow, would be administered by Christ's heel, bruising and crushing Satan's head. And the victory itself was then won by Jesus on the cross of Calvary and rising from the dead. So now, what is Satan doing? What is Satan doing now? Well, because he didn't kill Jesus, and Jesus rose again from the dead. He's he's still accusing us. He still goes before the throne of God to accuse us. And to accuse the saints. But now who is he trying to destroy? He's trying to destroy the Jewish people. And he's trying to destroy the Jewish people and keep them from a number of things. One thing he's trying to keep them, of course, from is the knowledge that Jesus, Yeshua, is their Messiah. It is very difficult to witness to Jewish people. Thank God for groups like Jews for Jesus and Chosen People Ministries and and many others that are actually going to their own people and ministering Christ to them as their Messiah. And a number of Jews are coming to the Lord. Not as many as we would like to see, but hey, listen, God... God adds to the church daily. We just got to be obedient to do what we need to do. But the point is, he's trying to keep, the enemy is trying to keep them from knowing the Lord Jesus. But there's also something else. And something I want you to consider. He's trying to, he's trying to destroy the Jewish people. Because it is the Jewish people, as the scripture says, it is the Jewish people who will eventually petition for the Lord's return. It is the Jewish people who will eventually petition for the Lord's return. Turn to Hosea chapter 5. It's the last verse, verse 15, and then we go into verse 1 of chapter 6. But in Hosea chapter 5, verse 15, it says, I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. 
Then they will seek my face. Notice. So the implication here is, of course, that the Lord is going to return to Jerusalem. And all the other prophets have, you know, confirmed all of this. He says, I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense and they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. How many times do we see throughout the prophets that the Lord is saying to them, Seek me and you will find me if you search for me with all your heart. And, and some do. There's always a remnant, by the way. There's always a remnant of people who do what God says. But there's coming a time, as the prophet Zechariah showed us, that the Lord is going to come and His feet are going to be put upon the Mount of Olives. And when He comes, their eyes are going to be open. They're going to see Him. And they're going to see the marks. And they're going to know who He is. But they were petitioning, crying out for God to come. Because you see, in the days that we're dealing with, the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, it's going to be really intense suffering for the Jewish people. And we're going to see what they have to do at that time, and what they're actually told to do at that time. But notice, if you will, the next verse, Hosea 6.1, Come and let us return to the Lord, for He has torn, but He will heal us. He has stricken, but He will bind us up. And time and again, I've been telling you, as I did last week, and I will continue to do so, Israel has not yet been done away by God. They're still His people. They're still the ones that He loves. And the Scripture is replete with a message of restoration for the people of Israel. You see it in Isaiah, and you see it in Jeremiah, you see it in Ezekiel, you see it in Daniel, you see it in all of the minor prophets, you see it here in Hosea, you see it in Zechariah, you see it in Malachi, and all the rest. So is it any wonder then, think about this, is it any wonder then that the enemy has been trying to destroy the Jewish people in every part of the world just so that they will not be able to petition for Christ's return? And the saddest part of this, and I mentioned this last week again as well, I mentioned this last week, that there is a portion or a section of the, of the church today that discounts, totally discounts, the nation of Israel that is there today, born in 1948, the modern state of Israel, but born there because God has intended to go back to deal with them in those last seven years. Hasn't happened yet, because we are still in the time, as it were, of grace, or in, in another view, a time of the Gentiles. But when that is over, because the rapture of the church will take place, then those seven years... God's going to deal with the, the last seven years, going back to the Daniel 9 prophecy. Uh, I mean, so much has been taught, so I'm just, just trying to get everybody caught up on all of these things. But you have to understand then, see, that that is just, a, that is just so blind. 
for people who carry Bibles and yet will not believe half of what the Bible says. And then they go against the nation of Israel and they, they want to go ahead and say, well, Israel is the aggressor in, in, in what is going on over there today. They, they don't know. I have actually challenged people who believe that to go with us to Israel. And I'll show you. You open your eyes for one moment, honestly, and you'll see what God is doing for that nation and with that nation and through that nation. That is one of the lies that the enemy has put over the world. That Israel is the aggressor. By the way, Israel sits on in what is called the Middle East. It sits on what is considered less than 0.1% of the land of all of the Middle East. And they're the aggressor. You see how you can pull the wool over people's eyes, but not us because we trust God's Word? By the way, the child being cut up refers to his ascension after the resurrection. Okay, it doesn't mean anything else. When, he, when he's caught up to the throne, he's, he's caught up at the, at the ascension after the resurrection. Okay, let's go to verse 6. Because we have what someone has called here prophetic telescoping. <laughs> prophetic telescoping. I'm not starting a new do, uh, doctrine or anything. It's just what somebody called it. Here's, here's how to explain that. We've just skipped about 2,000 years between verses 5 and 6. That's prophetic telescoping. Okay, got it? So we went from 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years later. In Matthew 24, and let me read verse 6 to you again. It says, And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Folks, who's the woman? Israel. Okay. So, with that in mind, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said that the Jews will flee to the wilderness after they see the abomination of desolation take place. That's right at the middle of the seven-year period. So, after the Antichrist enters the rebuilt temple and demands to be worshipped as God, the Jews will flee for their lives not even returning home for their belongings. And Jesus prophesied this. Matthew 24, verse 15. As a, matter of, as a matter of fact, Jesus puts it as a warning. He says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, the Antichrist goes into the temple and he proclaims himself as God, spoken of by Daniel the prophet. In other words, Daniel had predicted it. It had happened... Uh, another time, which was during the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testament, about 200 years before Christ's birth, during the time of the Maccabean, the Maccabeans, and it was Judas uh, Maccabeus who, who led a revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes, and who, who actually went and sacrificed a pig on the altar. So it was a prediction that was a near-far prediction. Here's the far part. He says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing 
in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. So we, we read it and we understand it because we know what it, what it pertains to. He says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now who's living in Judea? The Jews. Okay, this is not hard. Alright, there's a test, okay? Everybody can get an A plus right now. So who, who, lives, who lives in Judea? Okay, not any of you here right now. Unless you move over there, right? Okay. But even if you move over there as a believer in Jesus Christ, guess what? The rapture's still got to take place. You're not going to be around. So the Jews are there. Just making it clear. The Jews are there. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, this is literal. This is literal. Not sim- this, this is not uh, symbolism. This, Jesus is saying this is literal. By the way, none of this happened in A.D. 70. None of this happened in A.D. 70. And I say that because there is a segment of the church, the same ones that don't believe that Israel should be, you know, even considered as, 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 as a nation. They're the ones who are, or, who are saying, well, you know, in A.D. 70, all of the scriptures were fulfilled that Jesus talked about. No. This is one reason we know it isn't fulfilled. Because the abomination of desolation didn't take place in A.D. 70. Not as Daniel said it would take place. So then, verse 17 says, Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house, and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. So you see, Jesus is, is, is predicting this very same thing. What we read here in verse 6. That the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. That they should feed her there 1,260 days. Hey, how many is that? Three and a half years. A plus. All right. So as we've, we've alluded to this before, that the time marker, the time marker is the abomination of desolation, which takes place in the middle of the seven-year tribulation period. And this is when Israel, the woman, flees. This would be, as some believe, the remnant of Israel that is trusting in God. There will be a lot more trusted in God by now than maybe are there today. Or, you know, that are, that are true believers today. Or at least believers in God. And, and, and righteous followers, as it were. But um, it says there's a place where... She has a place prepared by God. The word prepared there is the very same word that you find in John 14 when Jesus tells us that he has gone to heaven to prepare a place for us. So th- this is the encouragement here for, for, for Israel is that God has already prepared a place for those who are going to flee during this very critical time and the area to where she flees is the area called Petra Petra which is located today in modern day Jordan just the other side of the border in in Jordan when you go to Israel you get to see when you go down to the Dead Sea you see the mountains of Edom and and, and that's, that's, that all belongs to Jordan over there. 
And they're going, you know, there, there has been a, a, a treaty uh, on and off, but there's been a treaty between Israel and Jordan. So access will not be hard for them. And it was Daniel, by the way, who, who spoke of this area. And he made an interesting comment. In Daniel 11.41, it says, He shall also enter. Now, this is speaking of the Antichrist, by the way. That the Antichrist shall also enter the glorious land, and, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape from his hand. Notice who they are. These shall escape. Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. These are all the ones that live in that area called where Petra is. Edom, Moab, and Ammon. They are going to be spared from the attacks of the Antichrist. And this is the area in which the Jews will flee to, and the Lord will protect them during this time. So there, there are a lot of other verses of Scripture we could deal with uh, about that. But there's another name for the area of Petra, and that is the area uh, that is called Selah, S-E-L-A, S-E-L-A, which is mentioned in Isaiah 16, verse 1. But in context, I don't want to go through that whole passage again because of time, but in Isaiah 16, verse 1 is where Selah is mentioned. In verse 4, it says, Let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab. My outcasts, let them dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler, for the extortioner is at an end. Devastation ceases, the oppressors are consumed out of the land. So this is a, a reference then that the Lord is saying to Moab, listen, you haven't been this way before with my people Israel, who are actually your relatives. By the way, do you all remember Ruth? She was from Moab. Okay, so yeah, there's a lot of family ties here. But nonetheless, the Lord is saying, let my outcast dwell with you, O Moab. So that's, that's an interesting passage here to think about as, as the open doors for where Israel is going when all of this devastation begins to happen upon Israel. Now, that doesn't mean they're all going to escape and they're all going to hide in Petra, but there is a remnant, certainly a remnant that's going to do that. But as we move on into the next section of Revelation 12, which is what we've been trying to get to for a while, we need to remember that the whole chapter itself, the whole chapter 12 is one of conflict. The prophetic gap between verses 5 and 6 is not coincidental. Because the present age of grace is omitted here because the wars being dealt with are a series of conflicts with the dragon persecuting the woman who is Israel. The dragon who is Satan persecuting the woman who is Israel. So, where's the church? It's not here. Understand that. It cannot be. Time and time again, we keep coming to this issue, and this is becoming more and more clear in the Scriptures. The idea is that the events in verse 7 don't begin until after the church has been taken out of the way. So now let's get to verses 7 through 12. And we don't have a lot of time, but we're going to get through. And war broke out in heaven. War broke out in heaven. Notice where it is. The war is in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with a dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought. So there was war and they were fighting. But oh, by the way, this is not as if they already did. They're, they're spoken of as if they fought already. But the fact is, because it's future yet, they're, they're going to fight. But they did not prevail. In other words, the, the armies of, uh, or the hosts of, of demonic forces did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. That's interesting, isn't it? 
No place is found for them any longer. You remember when we read Job chapter 1 and chapter 2? And it says that the sons of God gathered together and Satan came along with them. And it was Satan who came along to accuse Job of having no faith, of having no trust, or or maybe of doing something wrong. Because look at Job, look, you know, you keep protecting Job. You take that that, uh, shield of protection away from Job and and he'll curse you. Satan is the accuser of the brethren, you see. And he, you know, everybody says that Satan's in hell. He's not in hell. He's, be, he's before the throne of God accusing you and me. That's where he is. Well, who's causing all the problems down here? The third of angels that are now demons and they're going around tormenting people and doing all kinds of weird stuff. But notice after the war here that's going to happen, there's not a place found in, them, in heaven any longer. No more. God says, I'm done with you. So the great dragon was cast out. That's Satan. The great dragon was cast out. That serpent, that serpent of old called the devil. The serpent of old tells us what? He was there in Genesis chapter 3. Called the devil and Satan. The accuser of the brethren. Who deceives the whole world. Notice that. Please remember that. He deceives the whole world. He has cast to the earth, or he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. No more are they able to come to the throne of God to accuse. And then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of Christ have come. Keep in mind there are four things there. Salvation, strength, the kingdom of God, and the power of Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. The very reason why the seed of the woman was promised in Genesis chapter 15 will now find its completion. And they overcame him. I want you to notice what overcomes the enemy. Not just in the future, but now. Folks, now. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. And therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Okay, first thing. Those of who are in heaven... Alright, that's us. Yeah, we're there. Because yeah, we're, not, we're not here anymore. We get to rejoice. But what about those on earth? Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you. The devil has come down to you, having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Wow. Okay, we got another hour to go? Here we go. All right. All along, okay, all along, Satan has been before the Lord <clears throat> day and night, accusing the saints. <clears throat> but as we see, the Lord turns the tide against the enemy of our souls. First in heaven, and then on earth. And so this battle takes place that will deny Satan access to heaven. We are introduced now to Michael, 
And it is significant that this mighty angel leads God's angels to victory over the enemy because Michael is identified, by the way, in Scripture as, uh, or identified with, I should say, the nation of Israel. Take, for example, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. And this is a long verse. Uh, and that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. Notice, that's his assignment. He's the prince over Israel. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. Which is, of course, folks, the time we're talking about. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. So we see Michael as, as being that, that uh, uh, protector, that uh, angel, archangel actually is what he's called. Uh, over Israel. So it's quite significant that Michael's name means this. Who is like God? That's what Michael means. Who is like God? Now I say that because this is not, uh, uh, this is not to give certain groups the idea that Michael the archangel is actually Jesus. Because there are certain people who teach that Michael the archangel is actually Jesus. Or that Jesus is Michael the archangel. All right, well, not so. That is not so. Some have, because some have misinterpreted his name to mean one like God. But what did I say Michael really means? Who is like God? There's a significance there. There's There's a distinction there. Who is like God? Well, there is none who is like God, right? So one like God, well, that's that'll be Jesus, right? Well, the name, who is like God, is in fact given to Michael to counter the arrogance of Satan who was also at one time an angel before the throne of God. And he is now in his name countering the arrogance of Satan who seeks to be in the place of God. From the very beginning, this is what Satan has wanted to be. Just as we saw in Isaiah 14, he said, I will be like the Most High. So there in Michael's name is, who's like God? Not you, buddy. Uh Uh-uh. Simply stated, Satan and his minions will face the might and the power of the angels of God, led by the prince who protects Israel. Michael! In a battle that the Lord could fight himself because he's all-powerful. So that's an interesting thing. God could wipe Satan out just with a breath. Which proves to us how great our God is. That the angels who stand before the throne devotedly to God are much more powerful than those who have left the throne of God. The fact that the war is fought not only to cast Satan out of heaven but to cast him down to earth only goes to prove that the enemy might or the the enemy may be mighty but he is not almighty like our god the enemy is not almighty like our god well all along while satan has been before god's throne accusing us jesus has been there all the time being our advocate and representing us before the father the lord has been there all this time 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. 
And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And because Jesus died for us, we are able to overcome Satan's accusations. How? By the blood of the Lamb. By the blood of the Lamb. Read to the next verse, you see. Our salvation is secure, not because of what we've done or not done, but because the Lord Jesus finished the work on our behalf at Calvary. He said, Tetelestai, it is finished. It is finished. And so Satan threatens the peace of heaven, but not for very long. Some of this continuing battle affects us today in this sense. Verse 9, go back to verse 9 for a moment. Verse 9 of our text suggests that Satan, in his deceiving the nations, does so by lying about the church to the world. Well, I've already mentioned to you that he's lied to the world about Israel. But he's lying to the world today about the church. That's how, that's how he's affecting us today. And the sad thing is that in this nation, in this nation that was founded upon the Word of God and founded upon Judeo-Christian principles and the Judeo-Christian moral and ethics, the Word of God for our laws, for how we are to live, how we are to uh, take care of one another and, and all of that. That's being attacked even by our own administration. Folks, wake up. We don't have to become political to understand that what is going on in politics is trying to destroy the foundation upon which this nation began. When you have the threat given to military chaplains this past week during this shutdown of the government that on a given Sunday any chaplain that opens their doors for worship can be arrested. Did you know that? Got to read about it. It's been happening. That's the threat. Christian chaplains cannot mention the name of Jesus. Well, who then do they represent? People, we need to wake up. We stand for the truth of God, but now we're being attacked from all sides. You, you have to accept this and you have to accept that because, you know, if not, then we just label you as haters and racists and all kinds of other things. Simply because we trust the Word of God to tell people about Jesus that, you know, He came to die for our sins. People don't want to call what they do sin anymore. There's a lot of that going around. So we're seeing all of this today. The world considering us dangerous, deluded, and even destructive. In other words, we're the haters. So it is through this satanic deception that the leaders of the nations, including ours, band together against Christ and His people. But we can always defeat the enemy by being faithful to Jesus. We can always defeat the enemy by being faithful to Jesus. That's what our text tells us. 
Our witness to God's Word and our willingness to lay down our lives for Jesus Christ always defeats the enemy. Always. If you want, if you want good, uh, uh, an, a good example of that, just consider the Christians who have become true Christians under the communistic regimes in China. The underground church. They tried to crush that for over 60 years. Can't crush it. The more they put their foot down, the more Christians appear. (laughs) True Christians. Our witness to God's word and willingness to lay down our lives for Christ defeats the enemy. Let's, Let's consider 10 through 12. We're going to close here real quick. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ have come. For the accuser of the brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. And therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. When I began this study earlier by telling you who or what do you worship, that's what we need to be awakened to. Who do we really serve? What do we really love? Who do we really love? And are we willing to lay it down our lives for the most precious thing or person in our lives? Heaven is going to rejoice when Satan is cast out. But those on earth will not For the last half of the tribulation period will only mean intense suffering for all the world. Satan will not go quietly. He will be like a caged animal, enraged beyond words by the limitations placed upon his freedom. So let me close with this passage from 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. And we'll pick up here because we're going to complete the chapter next week. Let, let's, let's pick up with this thought. And I'm going to go over a few other things, kind of expand uh, some, some thoughts on, on some of these verses. But let's go to 1 John 2 and verse 12. Notice John, the same John who wrote the book of Revelation under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Before this, he says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Always remember, folks, that your sins are forgiven because of what Jesus Christ has done. And because your sins are forgiven, we don't go there anymore, do we? And we don't want to go there anymore. We don't want to go there. Now we want our lives, our new lives, our, our, our lives that are set apart for the Lord to be lived for Him. So always remember, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for His namesake. And then He says, I write to you, fathers, the more mature in the church, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men, those who are maturing, because you have overcome the wicked one. 
I write to you little children because you have known the Father and He wants you to keep knowing the Father and keep growing so you can become a young man who is maturing and eventually a father who knows deeply the things of God. And then in verse 14, I've written to you fathers because you have known Him who is from the beginning. And you say, didn't He tell them that already? Yeah, it's okay. The emphasis is, don't forget your responsibility to teach the young men and the children about Jesus by your lives and by what you do. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. So what we're seeing today in in this passage of Scripture lets us know that it is future because today, because of the blood of the Lamb, we have overcome the wiles of the devil. Well, let me put it this way. We are overcoming because we still need to put on every day the armor of God. Every day we need to put on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, and the shoes of the gospel. And carry with us the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And hold on to the shield of faith to protect us from the darts of the enemy. But every day we need to put on the armor of God. And really the whole capsule thought is we need to put on Jesus Christ. He's our salvation. He's our righteousness. He's our truth. He is the good news. He is the Word of God. And He is our shield and our buckler. Forward and aft. He is our protector and our keeper until the day that He says, I will come and gather you unto Myself so that where I am, there you will be also. Then God will take care of the rest. And He he will take care of His people Israel And he will take care of the enemy. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, let's let's pray.